Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello and welcome to the September edition of Signal from the Medianet. I'm your host, James Poulter, and I'm back in the studio with my good friend, Mr. Sam Hales, editor of Christianity Magazine. Hello. Great uh, to be here. I'm glad to see that you're here in one piece. Just about. <laughs> uh, we'll get into that in just a moment, but Sam did a lot of running this week, um, for better or for worse. <laughs> yeah, I think worse at the Mainly moment. Mainly worse. <laughs> um, we have got a great show for you and some really interesting stuff coming up. We're going to be discussing some of the best stuff that's been on TV recently, including the panorama including the Panorama programme with uh, Theresa May talking about the future of Brexit as we sit six months away from leaving uh, the EU. That's the UK, where we are broadcasting from. We're also going to be discussing the new show Press on uh, BBC One at the moment, which goes behind the scenes of a fictional account of what two warring newspapers, one tabloid and one broadsheet, are getting up to and some of the ethical implications that that brings up. Later in the show, I've got a great interview with Niels Smith, host of the Social Media Church podcast and also Innovation director at Dunham and Company who work with Christian organisations to help with fundraising and later on we're going to be discussing some of the best speeches that were never made and just some of the most interesting things coming out of a new book which is documenting speeches through the ages. So all of that to come in the show today and of course if you want to have your say get in touch we would love it if you would do that. You can do that by getting in touch on Twitter and just let us know on at the media net use hashtag signal if you're discussing the show and it would be wrong of me not to ask you for all of your loveliness when it comes to going over to Apple Podcasts and leaving us five stars for uh, the show. Uh, five stars if you believe in it or not. I'll take five stars anyway. That'd be great. It really does help people see the show and if you would share it with someone else, we would love that. So head over to Apple Podcasts, probably where you're listening to this anyway. Just swipe up in your podcast app and go and leave a rating and review. Okay, let's get into the show. 
So Sam, uh, you are in recovery mode. Um, <laughs> Sam uh, did what I think is only just equal to what Ruth did last month of climbing Kilimanjaro. Oh, I don't know about that. Uh, but instead of nearly dying going up a mountain, <laughs> Sam did it going around the roads. Go- going around uh, <laughs> Richmond, basically. <laughs> Which is not nearly as glamorous as climbing a mountain. <laughs> Equally wonderful uh, scenery, but not quite the same altitude <laughs> issues. Uh, why, why did you do all of the running? I, I ran a marathon. As to why, I'm still trying to figure that out, especially as now all of my leg muscles are screaming at me in great pain. Um, but you know what? It's a fantastic route. If you're someone who's wanted to run a marathon and you've tried to get into London Marathon and have failed, which is, of course, many people's stories because it's very, very difficult to get into London Marathon, I would highly recommend uh, this Richmond Marathon as a brilliant alternative. You start in Kew Gardens, you get five or six miles around Kew Gardens, which is a stunning. It's a lovely And then place. you're basically running along uh, along by the Thames. You go all the way down to Hampton Court Palace and then back up again. And um, yeah, I mean, the first half was lovely and all of the second half was nothing but pain. Well, I mean, that would be me after mile one, I think. <laughs> I, I usually struggle just to kind of get to work, let alone going around Richmond Park twice. Uh, and uh, how did you pass the time? Because uh, what, what, what was your time, first of all? You know, it was... Start so it's, if you if you're into your running this won't be very impressive at all but um, I'm you know it's funny isn't it you turn up on the start line you sort of take a look around you're like oh wow everybody here like running is their life you can Mm. just tell it's that kind of vibe and they call it London's most exclusive marathon because there's less than a thousand people doing it so it's quite small and it tends to be by many mammals (laughs) it tends to be people who are very hardcore I don't Um, don't mean the animals of, of Richmond Park but mammals being men uh, middle-aged men in lycra, I think, exactly. is the, uh, the term. Yes, yes, there was a there was a lot of that around. Not on me, I have to say. Um, so anyway, what, all that to say, if you're into your running, this isn't particularly impressive. But for me, it was five hours fifteen, which I was really pleased with I'd because be pleased with it's half an hour quicker than my last one. Well so done, you. I, I, I would be, with that. I would just be pleased to uh, finish. I was pleased to finish as well. I'd be pleased to finish breakfast on my way there um <laughs> and so uh, you've survived well, how did you pass that five hours you know what were you listening yeah. to what kept you going i have a running playlist on my iphone and it is full of some awful music but basically if it's up tempo and is going to keep you energetic it goes on so i'm i'm unashamed to tell you there's some five on that playlist wow um it's actually it's quite varied anything with a kind of beat to it it could be rock it could be pop it could be us it could be uk it could be instrumental it could be yeah it could be anything. Just so as long you, as it's kind of up-tempo, it's on there. Basement jacks are a fantastic example of that. I always wonder about this, because I, I don't tend to exercise. Um, and when I do tend to exercise, <laughs> I tend to exercise uh, to spoken word stuff. I don't understand how people like you can do this. I would love to be able to do that. I'd get through so many more podcasts. Well, I, I need something to sort time. of... But does it not... Do you not need something that's really kind of driving you forward more than just a spoken word? Well, I mean, I'm not moving at a very big pace in the first <laughs> place, so driving it any faster, really, I don't think it's going to achieve very much other than just making me sweaty and fall down. But, uh, I mean, I would say that, actually, yes, I, I do tend to use... It's, it's basically one of my kind of life hack moments. I have taken back to the gym recently, and one of the things that I do in that kind of 20 minutes of moving this, uh, you know, kind of large sack of flesh um, is listen to audiobooks and podcasts because I find that it's a way of, like, upping my mind at the same time as... Um, destroying my body. So that's yeah, a great that's, tip. Um, that if you can do it, I mean, if I could do that, I would, but I can't. You could finish an entire book in that marathon. You could, not yeah, easily. Well, um, we'll come back to audiobooks and podcast recommendations later on in the playlist. And um, well, 
uh, on the topic of podcasts, this weekend I attended the London Podcast Festival here. That sounds like in great London. fun. It was great fun. Uh, we went to a live taping of a uh, one of my favourite shows called Hello from the Magic Tavern, which is a improv comedy podcast uh, from a troupe of people from uh, Chicago. I think we've discussed it on the show before, but a really interesting concept of a guy that falls through a dimensional portal behind a Burger King into a magical land that's kind of like Tolkien-esque called Foon. Uh, and he happens to have his podcasting equipment with him and uses that every week to record a podcast from this tavern in the land of Foon with his friend Chunt, who is a talking shapeshifter, but exclusively inhabits the form of a badger. And his other <laughs> friend, uh, Usador the Blue, who is a uh, you know, Gandalfian-style wizard uh, with a drinking problem. So they're, they're very Gandalfian-style <laughs> wizard with a drinking problem. I've just found my new Twitter bio. I think that's probably what it's... Uh, I wouldn't recommend it. But it's um, the, the show I would recommend is hilarious. So we went to go and uh, listen in on a taping of that. Um, but there was some great stuff all, all weekend. But what I thought was really interesting was that this was... you know It took over the whole of King's Place, uh, the you know, uh, building in, in King's Cross here in central London, which, if you know it, is a uh, world-renowned uh, you know, vin- venue for orchestral music and uh, multiple uh, different venues. So they managed to fill that for an entire like four or five days. We only wow. just pitched in for the weekend of different podcasters doing live tapings doing interviews doing um behind the scenes sessions training materials just so, shows how big the industry so is why behind. are you telling me this now and not like a week ago because we don't need that training sam this oh. is a professional outfit if oh, you haven't realized. Of course it is, yeah. uh, we have the benefits of a professional radio studio to lean upon thank you very much to the premier gospel team for letting us in um but you know what's really interesting about i i thought from that show so um we went over the weekend and attended a couple of these things the amount of people that were there who were starting their own programs and not just independent podcasters that have come up through the ranks but the really big guys who are now moving into making their own shows and uh, I had the privilege of spending some time with the uh, podcast marketing team from Apple on Friday uh, at uh, Apple here in, in Regent Street and we, we spent some time kind of learning from them about how best to market podcasts how to get them out in the world and uh, there was people from all of the big main street uh, bring- there were people there from all of the mainstream broadcasters, from the uh, newspapers, from uh, a lot of the publishing houses here in London, uh, all there to learn about how to best mm. push their podcasts on these platforms. And it just goes to show how much people are really invested yeah. in that medium. So the latest statistics I saw on this was something like one in 10 people in the UK listen to a podcast, which, is, you know, that has grown significantly from a few years ago, but there's still a lot of room to go. What's your uh, outlook on the future of how big do you think this thing's going to get? Well, as you've probably heard me speak a little bit before if you've come to anything that I've done uh, listeners uh, you know kind of publicly talking about voice I think one of the really interesting things is that we're finding new ways to discover these shows all the time and so smart speakers in the home are becoming a really interesting way of getting that content in and then as these virtual assistants show up in our cars in the future that's the other main place that people are listening to stuff so it becomes really interesting but particularly uh, the shift I think that Apple have made from the kind of iTunes podcasting app store they were telling us a lot about how they're really pushing Apple podcasts as a destination for where their podcasts are being uh, shown and that some of the really big brand shows and you know some of the major newspapers they showed us the example of a, a podcast series created by the LA Times called Dr. John uh, sorry Dr. Death his name was Dr. John um, which is a six-part radio drama about a doctor in LA who was basically a, a potentially an imposter doctor who was uh, basically 
destroying lives um, through uh, pretending to be a, a back surgeon, which was just an amazing documentary uh, piece. But they showed us the way in which they were really marketing Apple Podcasts as a destination and using that as a badge to signal to people that this is free, that it's something you can go and get anywhere, and that like it has that kind of stamp of approval mm. kind of coming from Apple. And obviously, plenty of other places you can go get podcasts. You can get, uh, obviously, our show on th- things like Acast or on Spotify or on Google Play or anywhere else. But what Apple were really saying in, in that forum and also uh, very much in their presence uh, at the, the London Podcast Festival this weekend, which was also sponsored by Spotify, was that they are very much investing in the industry. And I think that can only be a good thing for the growth for all of us. Absolutely. That sounds exciting. <coughs> I mean, really we're, we're preaching the converted, aren't we? But I've long said that I think podcasts are the most incredible medium. The thing I love about them is you can be so niche with it, and yet you can find like a, a decent-sized audience. I mean, this is a great example, isn't it? Where Christian's talking about, uh, you know, about the media. That's that's a kind of niche audience, and yet there's there's clearly a need for that. And my hope is, and certainly my experience and plugging into podcasts, is, you know, the, the content is so tailored to where I'm at and what I'm interested in, in a way that radio just can't. Radio has to be broadcasting to a whole sweep of people whereas with podcasts you can be so specific in what you're talking about and who you're reaching so that, that's exactly right well and it, it leads me only into the, the best of plugs because I think for those of you that are listening or you want to get more into this obviously lots to learn from uh, what Apple are doing uh, over there but if you want to kind of get a more uh, tailored approach from our perspective um, we've got obviously the Church and Media Net, um, Conference coming up in the next couple of weeks the uh, Church and Media Conference will be hosted at St Mary's Marlebone on the 18th of October just a few weeks away now uh, and one of the sessions we've got there is how to and why for podcasting with um, Hussein Kasvani and uh, your colleague uh, Mr Justin Briley who's uh, sat about 10 feet away from us this morning and he knows all there is to know about podcasting he really does yeah obviously the unbelievable show uh, has been doing unbelievably well uh, so um, that's a yeah. terrible pun uh, but I, I like it so it's fine <laughs> so we'll, we'll leave that in um, but no we've got some really good uh, stuff around podcasting we're also looking at obviously where the future of media is going uh, what's coming in the new technology for media and connecting communities a panel that I'm doing with uh, friends of ours from the Church of England digital team also got Mukul Devashand who's leading the BBC voice uh, team over there uh, and and a number of other people as well throughout the day. So if you haven't got your tickets yet, go get them. We've got some really exciting people speaking, people like Kate Botley, people like Paul Carenza, uh, Julie Etchingham from ITV, Mark Friends uh, from the BBC Radio, myself. So, you know, why wouldn't you want to come? Uh, Mark Warburton as well, who was uh, the producer director for Songs of Praise, who was on last month's show. So we've got some really great people. Get your tickets. It's available over on Eventbrite, or you can go to themedianet.org slash conference and get your tickets for the Church and Media Conference coming up on the 18th of October at St Mary's Bryanson Square. Be there or be not there, but very disappointed. Okay, uh, in a moment, we're going to be diving into two of the big shows that have been making headlines here in the UK in the past couple of weeks and coming up still interview with Nils Smith, the host of the Social Media Church podcast. We're going to be talking about, does every church have to be a media brand in 2018 and beyond? He's got some interesting insights that he's going to share with you, so that is coming up shortly. Okay, so two shows that we've been uh, watching this past week have been making real headlines over the past couple of weeks, actually. Um, The first is the Panorama programme that aired this week on the BBC with Nick Robinson, who had spent a fortnight with the the Prime Minister, Theresa May, discussing how Brexit's non-negotiable issues are still um, up in the air. 
the whole show called Deal or No Deal, which um, just made me think that Noel Edmonds was going to kind of pop out at any moment uh, with a red box uh, or a red briefcase, probably in this case, uh, to kind of launch some other kind of counter-attack to reverse the Brexit decision. But I've got a feeling that he's probably quite happy about the whole situation. So we'll leave that where it is. But yeah, Theresa May uh, spending a lot of time with, with Nick Robinson. You've been watching this as well, Sam. What, what was your takeaway from the way mm. in which the Prime Minister um, portrayed not only the Brexit deal and the situation that we find ourselves in, obviously six months away from leaving the, the EU, but also, yeah. how how did she come across in this for you? Well, she's known as Maybot, isn't she? And I think she still has this kind of reputation of being more than a little bit wooden. I mean, a colleague of mine uh, recently was even <laughs> suggesting she's not even human in some sense, which I would disagree with. But I, I, I see what they're getting at, right? I mean, she doesn't come across as being particularly personable. And I've complained before, I won't repeat myself on this podcast, about her not answering questions properly. But all that said, I thought Nick Robinson actually did a brilliant job of highlighting where are we at right now? Um, because I'm sure I'm not the only person who's found Brexit a bit confusing at times and not really sure where we're at. And this documentary really made it quite clear. We've got this plan, this checkers plan. He explained why some people like it, why some people don't. He explained that this will then have to go to a vote in Parliament. And if Parliament reject it, then, well, anything can really happen at that point. I think most people would predict that Theresa May would have to resign. There could even be another general election. So um, it, it was quite a helpful okay, this is where things are currently stand with the Brexit debate. And, you know, it's times like this where I do, do just find myself incredibly grateful for the BBC because, you know, I'm sure we could spend hours going over every piece of Brexit coverage and making a judgment on how biased or, or not it is. But, you know, just generally look at this half-hour documentary. I thought Nick Robinson was very, very fair to all sides. He explained. He didn't insert himself into the story. He just sat down with Theresa May and some other important figures uh, like uh, David Davis, former Brexit secretary. Um, Michael Gove was a good interview. Yeah, Got Kirsten a lot out Starmer of him. As well. Yeah, so it was, a, it was a very helpful summary of where we're currently at. Um, but as, as for what's going to happen in the future, I think he ends by saying, doesn't he, Nick Robinson, that... Um, that if this vote does not pass in Parliament when, when the Chequers plan is kind of finalised and put to Parliament, if it doesn't pass, then we could be looking at the biggest political shake-up earthquake ever, um, which maybe is not overstating it if we think about how serious the stakes are right now. Yeah, it certainly did seem that way, and I think that it didn't leave me necessarily any more... Um what's the word you know kind of feeling any comfort no. <laughs> out of watching this show um, but certainly is enlightening just to show the complexity of these negotiations here's just a quick blast from the trailer of the episode you can go find the full show on BBC iPlayer here is Theresa May talking to Nick Robinson in Panorama Inside Number 10 Deal or No Deal Getting a deal will inevitably involve more compromise won't it? We're in a negotiation, Nick. You know, we're going to be sitting down, we're going to be looking at this plan. I've been very clear, those issues on which are absolutely non-negotiable. So an end to free movement, non-negotiable. An end to the jurisdiction of the European Court of Justice, non-negotiable. An end to sending vast amounts of money to the European Union every year, non-negotiable. Isn't it time to say to the British people, to your party, that's how plans work. That's how negotiations work. You give a bit, you take a bit. You negotiate, you compromise. Well, negotiation, by definition, is about two sides sitting together, looking at proposals and coming to an agreement on what proposal they're going to uh, put forward at the end of the day. There you go. Uh, Theresa May, the Prime Minister, talking to Nick Robinson about 
well, proposals. And that's the thing that I think was the overwhelming thing that I took from this as well, is that these are still all proposals. People yep. keep talking about the um, Checkers deal. I heard uh, yesterday morning, um, I think it was actually uh, David Davis being interviewed uh, on the Radio Force Today programme, talking about the um, Checkers deal, or it was put to him, the Checkers deal. And he made a very clear point, which is it's not a deal yet. It is very much a plan and that we still sit with an awful lot of uncertainty, which I think was a wise um, point to kind of counter. Obviously, he is also putting forward his own uh, Davis deal, which uh, the irony of that being that he obviously was Brexit secretary for two years and didn't find one um, is a little bit uh, hard to take. I, th- I thought but the, he's putting it forward. The, the Northern Ireland border issue has dominated a lot of the headlines, quite understandably, and I, I thought that whole debate was put across quite well because it, it seemed to me like Theresa May was saying, "Well, we can't have a hard border, um, so so we won't," and the other side was saying, "Well, no, th- there's an alternative to the Checkers plan here. Uh, what if we just have some sort of stations that check vehicles or whatever, twenty kilometres in?" land and of course Theresa May says well you can you can move it if you want but you're still basically putting a border in aren't you even if it's 20 kilometers inland on either side so so that was kind of fascinating and to me that issue I still I still don't see how we're ever going to resolve that one I mean they have also put forward that there are obviously all sorts of different customs checks that are done at different places throughout the country not on an actual borderline and so that you could still have a free movement of people across a border without necessarily having to stop every truck and having you know these worries that we've heard a lot about down in Dover the idea that there will be a kind of trucks lined up for you know, kind of 30 you know, kilometres heading down to the ports before being able to get across to Calais. So I think that there are different ways that have been discussed. But what I thought was really interesting about this and actually about the wider debate as well if you go back to last week's episode of Question Time on the BBC where there was a number of people obviously discussing whether or not uh, there should be a people's vote and what has been termed by some a second referendum although it would be obviously a different question but a referendum on the deal or a referendum on the offer of the deal is really like well how many times can you ask the same question it does call into you know particularly as Christians and thinking about how do we wrestle with these situations if we are called back to the ballot box to go and make this discussion um, you know kind of for a second time and and make a second decision there is that whole thing of like you know god tells us like let your yes be yes and your no be no and it's like well how many times can i change my mind should i you know just say no i made that decision i have to stick with it or is it okay to have that kind of logic and re-reasoning and work these things through i mean do you feel attention about that sam as well it's a fascinating point yeah i I guess let your yes be yes and your no be no is uh I'm not, yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure how I'd apply that to politics because clearly that verse is not saying you can't think about the issue and change your mind when you've understood more of the facts. Um, but I've always been uncomfortable with the idea of yet another referendum. Um, and I, I do think that the government have a duty to, to put forward an answer to the first referendum. And clearly we're not quite there yet. Um, so I, my personal feeling is, look, we should let them go ahead, come up with a plan, as good a plan as they can get, and um, and then we can have the discussion and the debate. But like you say, you're, you're quite right to point out it's not a deal yet. Um, and so maybe maybe the constant media attention on some of these details, maybe it isn't helpful. And maybe the constant discussion on this and that, well, let's actually have the plan. Once we've got the plan, maybe then we can all have a, a debate about it. I'd almost want to pause the discussion until then. If that was possible. But unfortunately, not, unfortunately, the time marches on. The other thing that I also took from this show, which was also... So um, something that Theresa May has been very clear about in the press in the past couple of weeks is that she has been, uh, you know, now gone on the record and saying, you know, this isn't about me or my future. This is about the future of Britain and the public, which is obviously true and fair and I think a fair counter to a lot of the personal politics that comes through this discussion. Or should she go? Or if she doesn't get a deal, should she go? But you do kind of, and we've talked about this before, but you do see this kind of ongoing rhetoric around 
it's all about the personalities here. It's about yes. the people. It's about Boris Johnson well, and, talking and also the, the Telegraph. Ju- it's yeah. all those things. And journalists will say, well, this is the way we make the story interesting. No one really cares about the exact plan of how we Brexit. But actually, the, the personality clash between Boris and Gove and Theresa May, that's what will make the readers interested. Yeah, and it's the thing that sells papers. And we've seen a lot of that you know, discussion of, you know, well, what do you put on the front page? You know, is it the thing that, oh, the PM will go? That's going to sell more than, you know, kind of the details of the Northern Irish border. You know, those are the things that sell papers they're the things that still make the media cycle go round um, and I just felt from also from watching this panorama uh, and also the surrounding coverage of it that she actually did quite a good job of deflecting some of that away from the discussion about her to back to the issues which yeah. I think is actually a nice change from what we've seen sure before. I mean that's a positive way of reading it I would go back to my negative way of reading it which <laughs> is that she just refuses to answer questions fundamentally um, I was intrigued to see a copy of the Times in her in tray yes, in one of the shots that's right yeah, uh, yeah. and it does make you and there was actually another shot of the Prime Minister's newspapers and it was every single national newspaper more or less uh, was on a table they all looked untouched and I can't quite imagine Theresa May sitting down with a copy of some of the red tops personally mm. but then it, it does make you question doesn't it well, does she read the Times every day does she does she read the Guardian how much of I'm the- pretty sure that she's reading the columns in the Telegraph recently so I'm pretty <laughs> Boris Johnson has obviously been you know outwardly lobbying against her plans I think that that is uh, you know, definitely where she's probably paying some I was attention. also wondering how this works out on a personal level because I was very intrigued to see at one point um, Nick Robinson tried to make David Davis kind of attack the PM really in a, in a political sense and um, and he kind of paused and said well it's not just Theresa May it's actually the whole government yes. and it seemed like he was quite unwilling to launch a kind of personal attack on let's face it a colleague maybe even a friend and mm. I wonder how this works when you've got high level politicians in the cabinet working closely together how much of the papers do they read? How much do they talk to the press? How much are they trying to maintain some level of personal relationship mm. or working relationship yes. whilst you've got the whole world slagging you off or writing about you is a, is a fascinating yeah. thing to consider. How you deal with that level of pressure? Well, absolutely. I mean, the cynic's view would also be that, as I said, he's been sat in the Brexit secretary role for two years leading up to this and he's pretty, you know, going to come under some scrutiny if they can't get a plan away, whether he's still sat in that position or not. So whether he's defending her or not or just, you know, kind of thinking about his own longer term opportunity, obviously he's already been leader of the party once maybe he wants another go around at that if it all does fall apart and that's why he stepped away we are yet to see but to your point about these infighting between the different perspectives and actually using columns in papers um, as still a way of doing that very vocally which is quite interesting if you think about the medium of using that particularly if you look at what Boris Johnson has been doing week in week out for the past couple of weeks uh, in the Telegraph of writing these rather awkward scathing in some cases very inflammatory um, you know kind of articles we talked last month about some of his use of language around the hijab and the things like that, you know, around the... Yes, and he followed it up soon afterwards with the suicide belt Yes, exactly. I mean, these types of things, but he's using that column as a mechanism for creating this kind of public dialogue which wasn't happening before. So you could still argue to some extent is that, well, we still need people to do that, to have these kind of informed discussions if if you're going to get that way. But at the same time, maybe it's just, you know, headline grabbing and it doesn't really move the debates on the idea of this fighting between papers is an interesting one because it's also reflected in the other show that we're going to talk about this week which is press on the bbc now if you've not watched this i thoroughly commend it to you not only as a great bit of program making and a great bit of drama but probably is one of the most um deeply um, interesting articulations of what modern media making and what modern journalism looks like today. I think we've not seen anything quite this um, well executed than pr- probably since the days of the newsroom in the US. And you I think stole this... what I was going to say, oh, James. Sorry, I was going to make that comparison. <laughs> I, I do know that you love that show. I love that show. <clears throat> 
But, you know, this isn't kind of Sorkin style, you know, lots of running around high drama. This is very... It's the British version. Yeah, very British, very personal, has a little bit of love in it, has a little bit of humour embedded. But essentially it's the story of two warring uh, newspapers, two fictional warring newspapers uh, in uh, set in, in central London um, between the, the kind of the Herald, which has kind of got a very Guardian-esque <laughs> blue header. I mean, it literally is the Guardian. It's a literal copycat. And... Uh, then the uh, the other side, which is the Post, which is basically a, a direct copy of the Sun, and these two, uh, you know, kind of tabloid versus um, the broadsheets, kind of going at it, showing actually what it means to make programs. Here's a little blast of the trailer to give you a flavour if you've not seen it, and then we'll get into talking about some of the characters and things that have been going on in the show. Here is the trailer of Press, currently playing on BBC. A couple of episodes in, all available obviously on the iPlayer. Mostly, our purpose here is quite a clear one, to entertain. Our job is the truth. You really want to do the right thing. The best layouts, images, the best online. The most outrageous storytelling in the world. Get me something good or you're fired. Are you pleased you're a journalist? (laughs) Are you the organ grinder or the monkey? A reporter? (laughs) And the monkey. We think that we're better, but we're not. News. More important than your son. No, more important than you. Press on BBC One. There you go, the organ grinder or the monkey. Sam, you're an editor now, so which <laughs> which do you see yourself in? Oh, no, you can't ask me that. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, I mean, the guy who heads up the post is portrayed very, very negatively, and yet there is something likeable about him. Yes, absolutely. I think I think he portrays a very likable side, despite kind of a hidden uh, agenda. I mean, I have to say that the acting, uh, what's his name? Who plays? It's Ben uh, Chaplin, who uh, plays Duncan Allen, who right. is the editor of the, of well, the Post. Ben Chaplin has done a superb job so far in this uh, series, just so well acted that part. Uh, it's fascinating, isn't it? So basically, the Post, which is effectively the Sun, seems to have pressure from above to actually be a bit more serious. Which yeah. I'm not really familiar with that that ever really happening with the tabloids. But I, well, I know this. I know this is a fictional setup. But on the other side, the Herald, which is the more Guardian uh, style paper, there's pressure there to well, we've got to make money here, and um, maybe we need to give a bit more to advertising, which I think is a bit more of a real life scenario that I think is more realistic. Yeah, so I think if you break down both of them, there's some really interesting kind of questions about modern journalism that get raised in this. So uh, you mentioned the Herald, so in in this uh, one of the episodes in the first couple, they have this debate about whether or not they're going to put a kind of wrap around one of their episodes, you know, kind of a plastic wrap with a full bleed advertising for a... Um, for a clothing manufacturer that has had some questionable working practices of which one of the journalists on the paper has actually been doing some investigation. I mean, into. again, you can't really think of anything that would be real real life I'm sure uh, they're basing no, this on, surely. I'm sure there's no uh, analogies No brands there. come to mind. But the, um, the editor um, in the show, Amina, um, played by um, Priyanka Burford, I hope I'm saying that right, um, has this you know, kind of ongoing debate with both herself and then the editorial team about the difference between separating, you know, kind of that church and state discussion of keeping advertisers at bay from the editorial decision Decisions, mm. But then actually being able to use that to their advantage uh, later on, I won't kind of you know, give away any spoilers. Um, but a really interesting debate, and you know, this, I suppose, kind of quite 
interesting commentary as well on what has been going on at places like The Guardian with all of the fundraising efforts that they've been doing and all of the badging of, you know, kind of please you know, make your donations and, you know, kind of vote with your money for journalism that counts so they don't have to become more reliant on advertising. You can see the conflict of that, the tension of that, you know, ethical dilemma played out so vividly in this show, um, which I'm sure is something that actually all modern journalists yeah. do have to deal with. Absolutely. I mean, I I found myself in positions since becoming editor where I think it does take great courage to say we're going to run this or you know and there is this sort of Chinese wall between advertising and editorial and you just say we've, we've got to go with, go with it it's not easy it's not easy to make those calls um, at all so yeah I, I find myself fascinated by some of the ethical dilemmas which feel quite real for my job um, when you watch them being portrayed on screen there's there's a few things you're like oh yeah I, this is kind of my world on a much smaller scale obviously I mean these are huge national newspapers well but absolutely but, you, know, you mentioned on the other side the kind of pressure for the post to be more serious uh, interestingly and I'm doing everything we can to get in touch with him so David if you're listening let us know but we I would love to speak with uh, David Suchet who actually plays the media owner uh, in this uh, in this show David uh, plays the role of the, the media owner of the, the Post uh, which is the tabloid in this he plays the character of George Emerson who is the, the kind of the media group owner and in uh, you know, he is seen you know, kind of talking to Duncan the, the editor character about you know, wanting to do more serious journalism that he's actually bought the paper for this to be kind of, kind of pushed out and you say that you don't see this I don't know of any um, examples of this um, factually to, that I can stand up here in the UK but certainly in the US you know one of the things that, Am- uh, that Jeff Bezos the, uh, the obviously founder of Amazon has said when he acquired the Washington Post was really for that reason was that he knows that it's never going to be a money maker it's never going to be a wealth generator but he loves what it stands for in terms of US politics and the message that it holds and so therefore it makes sense for him to own something like that and I can kind of see whether or not there's any undue influence there I wouldn't want to kind of cast any aspersions on but certainly in this discussion uh, yeah, again it plays out that thing of well actually okay fine if me- if press and particularly news isn't necessarily a money making operation then it has to be a loss leader but then it has to be a loss leader for someone yeah. and they have their own agenda and so you know the, obviously all of the analogies to the Murdoch discussions and you know kind of sky bidding to take over things all those kind of things you know kind of come humming back very quickly when you watch this and I do wonder if you know there are you know people sat around you know in the editorial towers of uh, you know kind of obviously the shard over at News UK and uh, you know across Fleet Street and Canary Wharf where they're worried you know about uh, takeovers and, and undue influence yeah well it reminds me actually of a tweet I saw this week from a fairly uh, um, from a well-known Christian author church leader Andrew Wilson who said that his observation is that the Telegraph is posting increasingly clickbaity stuff for the right-wing audience. And um, I can't remember the other example, but used a left-wing example saying, well, they're posting Absolutely. stuff for their audience that's increasingly clickbaity. And, and Andrew was saying the conclusion he's come to is if you want good journalism, you have to pay for it. Absolutely. And I mean, yeah, we've seen obviously many more of them going behind paywalls and managing things that way to do that exact thing. So we're not you know, all safe from it, even in the Christian world. Obviously, you guys here, at, you know, kind of Premier and Christianity, you have to do fundraising and all those kind of things. We're going to be talking in a moment with Neil Smith, who works for Dunham and Company, that does specifically that of helps companies like Premier, full disclosure, do for things like fundraising. Um, you know, that's something though that is also attention, sure. right? You guys well, have I mean, to deal with. Yeah, I mean, but for us as a magazine, I'm delighted to report that actually the, the kind of old model, if you like, is still working for us. So mm. people still pay to advertise in the magazine, and people still pay to subscribe, and that model is working, right? 
I mean, you're right yeah. that Premier more generally will fundraise, but that tends to be for the radio side of things, right. which is a completely different setup in terms of the, the levels of finances involved to keep a radio station going. Of course. So, you know, I want to say that actually, it, no, it is it is still possible for us. It's still possible for others. I mean, I, I, I can look at everyone from the economist, the new statesman to um, the spectator. They're all doing the same thing, right? Absolutely. They're all doing good subscription offers. Um, they're doing other things like events. Maybe they're trying to make their incentives even better for when you subscribe, you get the whole package. They're thinking about how online works. But actually, that is still the old model of mm. paying for a print magazine um, and it is still funded by advertisers and by subscribers so I don't want to be completely down on the old model and say it's completely died because that's certainly not true for us at this point anyway Absolutely but you, as you say lots of people are diversifying what they produce uh, and going into increasingly more competitive markets and so that uh, brings us kind of full circle so we've got the, this interview now coming up with Nils. So Neil Smith is a really interesting character. I had the pleasure of meeting him in New York earlier this year and Nils has been working for over 10 years in working on social media innovation and marketing for churches, for church ministries, helping them maximise technology for you know for good, for helping them grow uh, their uh, reach and for their social media engagement. He's also the host of Social Media Church, which is conversations with different church leaders about social media. I had the pleasure of also doing an episode with him this week as well, so watch out for that coming in the next couple of weeks over on the Social Media Church uh, podcast. You can get that over on Apple Podcasts and all other good places where you get podcasts as well. But but by day, Nils works for a company known as Dunham & Company, which helps build impact for leaders developing integrated fundraising, marketing and media campaigns. And he sits there as the overall head of innovation for Dunham & Company. More recently, he served as innovation pastor at Community Bible Church based in Dallas, Texas, and, I, and is now relocated with his family to New York City, where he is raising not only two girls, but also a lot of money for different ministries around the world, helping them execute social media and online ministry initiatives. I spoke to Niels this week to talk about the role of media for churches in an increasingly diverse media environment, obviously with the feeds driving so much of our social media engagement, it's becoming increasingly important for churches to have a social media presence and to have a content strategy and all the things that go with that. But against that trend is also so many hours and so many eyeballs for us all to get there. And without necessarily having a big budget, well, how do you break in? How do you think like a media publisher and hack your way into the feed to make sure that you can reach not only your congregation, but the wider world with the message of Jesus? So that is the story that we got into. And this is my interview with Neil Smith from Dunham & Company and host of the Social Media Church podcast. I, I was a pastor for, for about 15 years. I was a youth pastor for a little over a decade. Youth ministry, as I knew it, social media was core to how I did youth ministry. When I started in 1999, AOL Instant Messenger was my primary tool. Oh man, you're taking me back. <laughs> <laughs> well, and then MySpace came along and you couldn't do youth ministry back in 2004 without MySpace. And then Facebook came along and, and essentially what happened is the way I knew ministry expanded beyond just teenagers. And so my role at church changed from a youth pastor to an, an online pastor. It literally changed. And I, I started onlinechurch.com. And so we took a local church in San Antonio, Texas, and built a global church on the platform of onlinechurch.com, primarily social network of Facebook. And then that that really expanded and exploded, and, and I started getting a lot of requests for consulting. I got a request to write a book, and and I just began helping more ministries. And so while I am not, I'm, I'm still ordained. I still have do weddings and do some <laughs> ministry roles. 
uh, I am not in full-time ministry uh, with a church, I, but I do feel like I'm in full-time ministry with dozens of churches and ministries around the world through my, my uh, job at Dunham & Company uh, that exclusively serves ministries. So let's just let's just dial back there. So you kind of dropped a bunch of bombs on us there with AOL and MySpace. Yeah, what was that like in those early days of doing ministry online? So yeah, is this all about just getting like kids in your youth group into your top nine, or like you know ASL and just reaching out to people randomly on the chats? Like how how was that working for you back in those days? Yeah, you know it was it was all about relationships at the core. I, I would say it wasn't intentional. I remember in 1999. Um, two tools uh, were my key ministry tools. I was given a 15 passenger van. Uh, we had three youth on my first Wednesday night at that youth group. I was 19 years old um, and was get, like summer youth pastor at a, at a church. And, um, and I remember the, one of those three kids said, what's your aim? And I didn't know what aim was. <laughs> you were like, what's my mission? What's, what, what am I trying to do? Yes. <laughs> and so, uh, so that night I got on the church. We had one church computer that, at the church secretary's desk, the dial-up internet. Yeah. I got on that computer. I downloaded AIM and I created Niels BYX, which was my fraternity letters. Um, and so I, I, I created my AIM and I added her um, as my first friend on AIM. And she connected me that night to about six of her friends and within a week, I was connected to dozens of kids in that area, uh, relationships. The next week, our youth group doubled. We had six kids that we picked up in that van, and we had a youth ministry. By the end of the summer, we were having 40 or 50 kids. And the primary reason from my, uh, the seat I sat in was because I prioritized relationships the way they were building relationships during the summer on AIM, and, and I was connecting them in face-to-face -face relationships. And so for me... That was the core use of how ministry was done relationally. And so my space is that it, it was it was more just a passion of like, I've got to figure this out. Teenagers are spending time there. So I need to figure out how to build relationships with them on on this platform. And so that that was, you know, every new platform. Now I'm entre entrepreneurial by nature and I love new tech. So there was a side that was easy for me, but it was really just the intentionality of building relationships there. So, so let's you know, bring us now further through, which is quite interesting of what's you know, come somewhat full circle is that you now find yourself back when you're talking about social media is very much back in those places, right? One-to-one -one connections, smaller connected groups, messaging-based platforms. You know, we've gone through that journey of everything being feed-driven and scrolling and content. That's a tension right now. How are you advising the churches and ministries you're working with right now to think about that? You know, is every big church you're dealing with now a media company or is it back to that more group-driven, relational way of working? Yeah, I, I think it's it's kind of a both situation where I would say not every church needs to be a media company. I think there are some hyper-local situations where maybe it isn't necessary, but I would say that's the exception, not the rule. I would say most ministries need to see themselves as a media media company or a media organization, maybe even first, because at, at the core, when you look at the mission of the church, and and so a lot of times it's it's to reach, teach. You know, we'd always say this community Bible church: reach, teach, and help people in Jesus' name, or bring them in, build them up, and send them out. There's different ways to say that, but that can be done on 
doesn't have to just happen, uh, you know, uh, in face-to-face relationships. It can be done online, and it, it can it can augment the face-to-face relationships. And so, but when you see yourself as a media company, you 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 can engage new people. It's a new front door for your church, but it's also a new discipleship engagement opportunity. And so, you no longer just just engaging them for one hour on Sundays. That time between Sundays becomes very powerful for your church as well. And then two, how you're able to resource the people that you're sending out. It's it's a really incredible opportunity. And at the core, it's about community. And so you think about the, the technology of social media and how it has affected us. It connects us deeper in our family relationships, in our friendships, and, and with new creating new relationships. How many people meet online? Their their marriages are now burned online. And so the, the church, I think, should be at the intersection of where relationships are being built. And so, yes, I think most churches need to prioritize media and so particular. And I think big churches especially are, are the ones that are really seeing a lot of the fruits of that as they prioritized it. So, so there comes the tension, right? Is there's only so much space in the feed. There's only so much eyeball time that people have for Instagram, YouTube, wherever it is that they're spending time. And so how do we wrestle with this thing that actually, you know, the big churches, the Community Bible Church, the online ministry that you're part of, the life churches of the world or Hillsongs or whoever, how do we give um, enough space that the smaller church that doesn't have that kind of resource, how do they handle that tension of actually wanting to meet and reach people locally through social media when, quite frankly, there is some of the best content in the world when it comes to Christian content available at immediate notice uh, just right there by jumping into Instagram and, and swiping a couple of times down. Yeah, I, I think that is, is is a tension or a challenge when it comes to creating content, but, but at the core, the, the playing field is more leveled than it ever was before. To, for a church to maximize media, 15 years ago, they'd have to get TV, buy TV time. They'd have to have cameras that would cost $100,000, and they'd have to have a, a, a studio. Well, right now I've got a studio on my home that cost me about $200 uh, with the microphone and the cables and everything that I need to produce a podcast uh, or produce a, a YouTube channel. And so the the playing field is actually leveled more than ever. And I, I will say there's a challenge of when you look at Stephen Furtick at Elevation Church, they have full-time video editors that not every church can afford, and they have equipment that that might be challenging to keep up with. But but a smartphone is a really good camera, and a Blue Yeti microphone that cost one hundred and fifty dollars on Amazon, really good microphone. Yeah, the one that and both so of us the, are speaking the gap into. Of being able to create. <laughs> that's exactly right. Yeah. Um, and so the, the 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 gap is is smaller than it was before. There there are naturally those with more resources that. Uh, are able to create more content and maybe maybe higher quality content, but uh, but I would say the gap is smaller than it's ever been before, and the opportunity is great. So if the opportunity is there and we've come an awful long way, maybe you know I know you a little bit, and I know that you like to think about the future and, and where things are going. Innovation pastor, you would hope that that's someone that's thinking about the future. Um, yeah, as we've we've had this discussion uh, the last time that we were together in New York talking about this idea of well, when all of this content is out there and the feeds and algorithms are scraping it and learning from it and generating their own stuff, you know, do you need great preachers in the future when everything is already available? You know, every good sermon that's ever been preached about John 3.16 maybe is already online or there's an algorithm that can go generate the next one. You know, where do you see the future of this kind of online ministry? Are we heading towards more connection in person, less connection in person, 
or you know some other form that we've not even thought of yet what's what's on your radar what are you paying attention to oh that's a great question i i think that while there is lots of great content and there there will continue to be great content created and even content that was created 50 years ago that's repurposed for new and that has new life today um, I believe there's so much opportunity for new content to enter the streams. I think I think what what's happening is artificial intelligence and a lot of algorithms are customizing our feeds and they're learning us better than ever. And so all of this content that's coming out there is going to be able to be essentially categorized to where if you're dealing uh, with anxiety, there's going to be able to there's going to be a feed that's going to be so ideally perfect for you of understanding your styles, understanding. Uh, the 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 scripture passages that are gonna that that are gonna speak into that moment in your life, and so I believe then the more content that's out there, and the better the content is, the higher quality is, the more intentional the content is. These systems are going to be able to feed these to the right people at the right time, in the right moments. Now it might not be the same mass that we're used to, but I think it's going to be a hyper targeted, more effective engagement that, than we've ever known. Now I think. As I think through the future of these things, what what I continue to find is that I think this is all going to happen tomorrow. It's not going to happen tomorrow. Uh, AI is moving quickly, but but it is a slow progression. I mean, you look at what's happened with Alexa over the last five years. I, I think I got my first Echo device maybe maybe four years ago, three years ago, whenever that first one came out. And it, I think Alexa's not talking behind me. So. <laughs> You were saying that those devices like Alexa that's just sparked up behind you, that happens to both of us all day long because these things are listening to us all the time, right? So yeah, is that the future where we're going to start getting our ministry through these things as well? Is that where you kind of see it going? I, I think it's going to be part of how we're ministered to. And, and I think even the relationships are going to be more customized and, and intentional. But but I, I, I'm one of those people that believes wholeheartedly in technology, but also that, that we are made for face-to-face human uh, direct touch relationships. A, a you know, uh, the, those devices can't hug you. They can't shake your hand. They, they, there, there are things that are, are, you know, that, that just need in face-to-face relationships. But I do think they can augment face-to-face relationships in a really effective way. Face-to-face relationship is not is not a, a reality uh, in certain parts of the world when it comes to spiritual engagement connections. So the internet and new tech provide new engagement opportunities. So while I, while I think it's going to connect the world in unique ways and, and connect all of us individually in unique ways i don't think it's going to replace it at least not holistically i think parts of the church will shift and will mature and develop because of it and i think at the end of the day to me that's exciting that's an attention and, and really a competition for our time and energy one of the tensions that we also deal with um, in this kind of algorithm-driven world is we've all seen in the past couple of years the issue of fake news, fake content, uh, you know, fake advertising, all of these different fakeries that are creeping into our feeds that we have to deal with on a daily basis. There is a potential for that also to affect us in the church as well. Fake news is not something that we can all avoid. How are you counselling those you know, um, companies, ministries, churches, individuals that you're working with, how to handle that issue um, and how to protect themselves against you know, succumbing to fake teaching or, or fake news or those that maybe would wish them harm rather than good. Yeah, you know, one, I'll maybe just speak fake news in general. I think the season of fake news is so such a small window 
uh, of what we're going to see. I think technology is going to just weed out fake news. I think social media weeded out more fake news than, than it's added uh, to fake news because it, it has created a level of transparency for everyone. I, I think it's one of the, the reasons actually we're a lot of pastors uncovered uh, for, for some of their wrongdoings is, is that everyone now has a news outlet. Now, that there are t- challenges with that. But I think that the way the Internet works and matures, I think I think fake news is going to be minimalized in, in the coming years. And, and then I, I think there's a there's a role for pastors and ministry leaders, though, in, in the world of the Internet. And so fake news is a part of that, of, of, of pastoring through those things. And so communicating here's here's what you here's how you use the Internet. And, and so I think the side of pastors need to help their congregations. Let's talk about pornography. Let's talk about the dangers of pornography, and let's talk about technology addiction. Let's let's talk about how to healthily use technologies and and how to navigate the things that you're seeing through social media and some of the fake news that you're seeing. So I I feel like it's a pastoral issue. I don't know if issue is the right word. There's just a pastoral leadership opportunity to help your congregation navigate the internet and navigate the voices that they're hearing, the the things that they're seeing, and understanding how to how to navigate the world of the internet because in the past there were five television stations and uh, that's where you got all of your media and so there was a very small filter and you basically had to say don't watch this channel and watch this one uh well the internet's it's it's a lot more complicated than that today and i think we've got to lead through that well, Nils, thanks so much for taking the time to uh, talk with us on the Signal podcast this month, and I think a fascinating challenge to everybody to go wrestle with. Uh, if people want to follow up with you, where can they do that? How can they find out more about where to get in touch? Absolutely. So nilsmith.com is, is my website, and so you'll find a link to my, my vlog on YouTube or at nilsmith on Instagram and Twitter. So I would love to connect on social media. 
Thanks so much there to Nils. As you heard, you can get in touch with him there on Twitter. And I do really encourage you to go and check out the latest episodes of the Social Media Church podcast, where he has had some amazing guests in the past couple of weeks looking at topics like learning from Facebook and talking with uh, DJ Shang and uh, Kenny Zhang, who are some amazing social media church uh, mavens. So you should definitely go and check that podcast out. You might even hear yours truly on there in the next couple of weeks. So I would always appreciate a little tweet when you hear it. Let us know what you think. Okay, now time for the playlist and we've got some really interesting recommendations this month for you. Things that you should be watching, listening to, reading and consuming wherever it is that you consume your media. It's probably on your phone, um, but you know maybe it's on your TV or in some cases it might even be something worth picking up off of someone that you find on the street like the article that I'm going to tell you about in just a moment's time from The Big Issue. So that's coming up in a second. But Sam, what's your recommendation for this month, month of well, September? My recommendation is something that you would read on a dead tree. That's right. I'm going, going full print rather than... Actually, you could read it on your iPhone. There's probably an e-book available as well. So this is obviously a podcast brought to you by the church and media now. Network. And I always think when it comes to recommendations, you want something churchy and something media-y. That's the kind of sweet spot, isn't it? Probably. Um, and in the past, I've done quite a lot of media stuff. So this month, I'm going to do something full-on churchy. It's Uh-oh. not very media. It's full-on churchy. Okay. Although technically, because it is a book, it is a, it is a, a medium, if uh, you like. Yes, I'll accept um, that. Anyway, shall I get on with it? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> after that ridiculously long uh, introduction, the book is called Letters to the Church by Francis Chan. Francis Chan has been known to many people, very popular author, speaker, wrote a book called Crazy Love that I feel like every Christian was reading about a decade ago. And uh, his latest book out this month is superb. I've read it in full. It's not the kind of book you should read if you need a kind of pick-me-up and you want some encouragement. But if you want a, a heck of a lot a challenge and something to really think through and wrestle with and things that might even change the way you think about church or uh, the way you practice your faith this is just it doesn't get any better than this um, I'd say if you're involved in any kind of leadership or church ministry it's a must read but really if you care about the future of the church particularly in the West um, and you want to fundamentally get back to the biblical a biblical view of what church should be then um, this is a super super challenging work so I mean for example one of the things he talks about is how He's been guilty of using this language of, oh, as a preacher, I need to make the word come alive. I need to make the Bible come alive. And, and Francis Chalmers says, well, actually, as I read the Bible, they, they tended to sort of read out scriptures, you know, in, in church. And that was it. He didn't need like a, an analogy to go with it or a particularly talented communicator. They literally just read scripture. And Francis Chan says, isn't it interesting that he can't think of any modern churches, really, where you'd stand up at the front and read more than, you know, a chapter or two or even, you know, even that. It's pretty rare, isn't it? Mm. Just read solidly from scripture instead of having a kind of preach and you think wow that's a radical that's a radical idea because you know people love preachers we've kind of got celebrity preachers now and oh who do you follow and oh he's a great communicator so one of his radical ideas is hey why don't we just read scripture and he tells this story of this group of people who got together and just read the bible for 72 hours straight and obviously took it in turns to read through they read through the entire bible all the way from genesis to revelation in 72 hours and francis chan says when they got to the end of that you know it was this kind of indescribable feeling of of well, it's an indescribable feeling. I'm not going to try and describe what it was like. <laughs> uh, but something very, very special took mm. place in that room. And, and Francis Chan kind of quips that this group of people did in 72 hours what many Christians won't even do in an entire lifetime. So maybe that whets your appetite a little bit. He's basically 
he's basically trying to get us back to a biblical way of thinking about church. And he's pointing out how, in many ways, the modern Western church differs in some very stark ways from a biblical view of church. So it's Letters to the Church by Francis Chan, published by David C. Cook, out now. Well, from David C. Cook, you can hear this is a a short blast of Francis Chan talking about his new book, Letters to the Church. And man, you understand that this book is about how Jesus is going to return one day. And you and I, we can't afford to just go about life and not care about his bride. When he returns, I want him to find me just giving everything I've got to bring health to the church. And that's what this book is about. My hope is that you also will see the need to just repent from this casual attitude and treat the church as sacred again. There you go, Francis Chan talking about his new book, Letters to the Church. And if you're wondering what the uh, waterfall sound was in the background, he is doing that entire chat standing in the Jordan River is slightly do. disconcerting. Um, but yeah, I, I love Francis Chan. I think a lot of his work is amazing. He does have this ability whenever I see him speak publicly to look like he is in constant joy and pain simultaneously, which is kind of how I think that probably Sam feels right now after this week <laughs> of uh, doing lots of running. So um, that is uh, Francis Chan's Letters to the Church. My recommendation this week is not a book, not a podcast, not anything else. It's actually just an article. Come on. Um, Magazines <clears throat> are not dead. Article in a paper, uh, a paper magazine that I paid good money for uh, for a good cause. It actually comes from the big issue this week. Um, the This is coming from uh, issue 1325 um, for the week of September 17th. Um, so if, whether or not you'll be able to get your hands on it, I don't know. But it doesn't matter because the thing that I'm pulling out is a great article called The Greatest Speeches Never Made. And I was reading this on the way in uh, this afternoon to come and record the show. And I was just flabbergasted, quite frankly, by some of the things that are in here. Now, these speeches all come from a book that you can go and get so it doesn't matter if you can't get this week's big issue although obviously please do go and give some money to your local seller if you can um called speeches of note and it's compiled by sean usher and it's out on uh, september 20th published by uh, published by hutchinson but the um the speeches that are in here are basically different speeches that were prepared but never delivered because history went the other way and so we know a lot of these speeches from these moments in time um you know whether that is one small step for man or i have a dream or we will fight them on the beach you know, those are opening lines and or lines from speeches that we know well from moments in history. But these are all the speeches that were prepared that never made it to air because history went the other way. And there are some really fascinating, I just can't tell you how fascinating they are, the really fascinating um, looks into how history could have been different, which I would love to go down a whole tangent here about, you know, alternate universes and string <laughs> theory, etc, etc. And, you know, kind of other places where maybe that's all happening if God kind of wants that to be the case. I'm not going to go there, but... What I am going to do is just kind of share some of these things with you because I think they're really interesting and I'd love, Sam, your reaction on some of these things. So the first one, which they they share in this article, was written for delivery on July the 18th, 1969. Now, what date do you think that might have been for? 1969. Ooh. uh, If I tell you that this would have been delivered by an American president, can you get who it is? Well, American presidents in the 1960s were very concerned about, uh, about Russia and about the space program Aha, there you are the second part there is absolutely right the space program so this is a speech that would have been would have been delivered by president richard nixon in the event of a moon 
disaster rather than a moon landing. And it's absolutely... Well, wow. I mean, it's both tragic and fascinating at the same yeah, time. Yeah, I guess I never thought you'd have to prepare a speech for if that all went wrong. Absolutely. So this is... Uh, this is. Um, I'll just give you a little um, one line from it, but then uh, what I think is even more interesting is the instructions that come with it. Um, the opening line would have been, fate has ordained that the men who went to the moon to explore in peace will stay on the moon to rest in peace. These brave men, Neil Armstrong and Edwin Aldrin, know that there is no hope for their recovery, but they also know that there is hope for mankind in their sacrifice. What an amazing thing to have to have delivered. It would have closed with the line, for every human being who looks up at the moon in the nights to come will know that there is some corner of another world that is forever mankind. I mean great speech writing if nothing else <laughs> but what's even more interesting is the um, instructions that come uh, directly after that, that the president would have had to deliver it says prior to the president's statement the president should telephone each of the widows to be and so this would have been written in the full knowledge that yes they may have made it to the moon but they weren't going to be making it back and so therefore their inevitable demise that would kind of happen there and it also says after the president's statement at the point when NASA ends communication with the men a clergyman should adopt the same procedure as a burial at sea commending their souls to the deepest of the deep and concluding with the Lord's Prayer. Isn't that amazing? That is amazing. I mean, we're probably getting too dark now, but... So <laughs> We've how, never done that on this show how, before, so I wouldn't worry too much. How exactly, <laughs> how exactly would they have died? Would they have just run out of oxygen? Well, I can only imagine and that. Well, at, some, at some point or other, I suppose so. I, I wonder how much oxygen they would have had and how long that would have taken. Yeah, probably just... Well, yes, that is quite dark. Sorry. <laughs> I did warn you yes, before I went there. Warning, listeners. But, uh, sorry, Sam has so the, back to the, Sam's back to still the, aching from his marathon and has the propensity to take these things the rather far, <laughs> Back to the far more important religious uh, point of that story of saying the Lord's Prayer. Yes, I thought that was really fascinating that they would end it out in the same way as a and kind I of think, burial at sea. I think if it were America today, I have total faith and confidence they would end in the same way with the Lord's Prayer. Mm. I I what about the European Space Agency? No, I don't think they would. No, no way. No. I, I mean, I don't even think the UK would, but I don't think the European would. No, it's a really interesting one, isn't it? But, yeah, obviously in the 60s, or you know, this was the bridge of the 70s, still very much seeing that as something that you would do uh, yes. for these, these two great men. Thankfully, uh, history took another turn and they returned to us, but uh, what, I, uh, an, what an amazing thing. I remember being at a press conference with Matt Redman a few years ago, you know, who wrote all those fantastic uh, Christian worship songs like 10,000 Reasons, and someone said to him, oh, you know, Matt, you're amazing, you know, your, your songs have been played around the world, your songs have been played in space, and Matt just paused <laughs> and said, yeah, that, that wasn't by aliens, by the way. <laughs> it's just a very funny moment. You um, never know. But yeah, Astro Astronauts. Clearly, there are many Christian astronauts and people who take their faith very seriously and you know see themselves exploring God's creation. But when it comes to the actual institutions of the European Space Space Program, or NASA, or, or well, yeah, NASA. I'm not sure how much religious content is left in some of those things. No, it's interesting, but you know the fact that that would have been a presidential speech that you know kind of could have had to be delivered just continues to fascinate me I won't take you through all of these but I do commend the article and the book to you They're in, in, included in this article were two others which I thought were fascinating uh, one is uh, a speech that the Queen would have had to deliver in the event of World War 3 um, it's a message that would um, to be broadcast would have been broadcasted at noon on Friday the 4th of March 1983 so what was happening in 1983 that could have caused World War 3 well that's what I was trying to uh, interpret from this article but it wasn't particularly clear was it just a dodgy episode of EastEnders or something I would hope not so it says um here that now the madness of war is spreading through the world and we are b- be a brave country we must prepare ourselves to survive against great odds um and it goes on to kind of talk about later on that you know about the um 
The enemy is not the soldier with a rifle, nor even the enemy uh, being the airman prowling the skies above our cities and towns, but deadly power of absurd technology. So I believe that this is in the threat of some kind of nuclear So when was uh, the, this wasn't the Cold War then? I think it would have been in the midst of the Cold War yeah. in 1983, yes. Yeah. So I think this show is probably... Showing my, show my the, lack of history. Is that Cold War? Yes. Sure. So this, uh, this was actually plucked from the National Archives, the actual speech. So it is kind of like kept on record and it's printed on lovely pink paper with header and footer saying very much secret um, and it would have been come from the cabinet office but you know, a really fascinating uh, would the thing. queen still give big speeches like that well that's an interesting question isn't it would, you know, would it fall to her would yeah. it fall to her successors I, in the future I always assumed that anything like that would always be prime minister rather than I would imagine so this may have been something that she would have followed on from the prime minister announcing obviously in the mid 80s there it could have been so uh, if, if at any point in the future we hear that the queen's about to make a speech unexpectedly we should basically expect World War 3 I would hope that that's not going to be the case but let's uh, sorry I'm getting dark stand again by. it's really that, that marathon's really done things to you <laughs> there is another article in here about the speech that General Eisenhower would have given if D-Day invasions have failed but given your current temperament I don't think that we can really stand up to that so all I can do <laughs> no, for you no this is fascinating I share your fascination with this subject are you sure you don't want to do one more okay well the, the, I'll just let you give an idea of this is that um, this is a very short speech actually because obviously given the, the timing of when it would have been broadcast um, this is uh, something that General Eisenhower would have uh, said if the D-Day landings had failed it says our landings in Cherbourg Havre area have failed to gain a satisfactory foothold and I withdraw the troops my decision to attack at this time and place was based upon the best information available the troops the air and the navy did all that bravery and devotion to duty could do if any blame or fault attaches to the attempt it is mine alone um, which is really interesting that you know kind of him would have been taking kind of sole culpability for the whole situation so yeah absolutely fascinating I really recommend going and checking out both the book and also the article if you get a chance to it's called speeches of note and it is compiled by Sean Usher I, I find speeches just whether they are ones that have been delivered or not an absolutely fascinating medium yeah. and I, uh, to, I, to review I guess the other thing we should learn from this is that politicians are clearly very well prepared when it comes to speeches and perhaps those who win Oscars are not I mean if, if I had a, a penny for every time someone got up at a, an Oscar and said oh I didn't prepare a, a speech I didn't think I'd win whereas clearly these politicians that not only are they preparing speeches when they win they're preparing them for when they lose and when the whole world ends as well absolutely and so why did Vince Cable get it so so wrong this week then? <laughs> I don't think we've got time to investigate into uh, that poor Vince uh, we, if you haven't heard that clip absolutely definitely go check it out it's a, it's a shame that unfortunately despite all that I've tried to do for the Liberal Democrats we still can't hold together a decent conference anyway that there we was are. a party political broadcast by James Poulter yes it's normal right. service will now be restored. full disclosure at some point or other so that comes to the end of our show for the month of September thanks so much to my friend and host Mr Sam Hales you can go find him on Twitter where at Sam Hales and obviously go pick up a copy of Christianity magazine where you can read not only his editorials but many other good things besides thank you very much my name is Mr James Poulter you can find me on all good social media at James Poulter or you can find us tweeting over at the Medianet at at the Medianet with hashtag signal these Twitter handles are really quite hard to remember aren't <laughs> yeah they? there's a little thing called Google which I've tried from time to time it tends to be a good way of finding us and if you're worried about it then that's what I would recommend as well um, of course one last plug we've got to let you know again Church and Media Conference 18th of October St Mary's Bryanston Square tickets are still available although they are going fast genuinely one of my favourite conferences of the year 
it's always all, a highlight it's always good and it's going to be better than ever this year we're in a bigger venue more space more sessions more people and we've got some really awesome ones we've already mentioned them on the show a couple of times Mr Justin Briley will be there Mr Adrian Harris previous guest on the show head of digital at the Church of England will be there Mark Warburton who was on the show last month will be there and many more besides including Kate Botley Paul Carenza and many more so I really do commend it to you go get your tickets at the Medianet uh, from themedianet.org slash conference or find it on Eventbrite and you can get registered there and while you're doing that spend a couple of moments flip up on your Apple Podcast app or wherever you're listening to us whether it's on Acast Spotify or anywhere else and go and leave a rating and review really does help other people find the show and we recommend it to you and we will see you again very soon on the next episode of Signal from the Medianet for now bye bye